0: if you're craving nerdy tunes we've got you covered nerdy fm is the nerdy show network's nerd music podcast hosted by me mark with a c we feature the best in geek rock nerdcore comedy vgm and every genre in between the biggest artists alongside awesome up and comers with rare tracks exclusive live recordings and a massive archive to keep you rocking the nerd world over tune in exclusively through the nerdy show network
1: Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom. From comics and video games to science and technology, if it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap, and this episode, well, January, we're just being peculiar all across the board. Not only did we have an unusual microsode last week, and we're going to have an unusual microsode next week, but this week, instead of doing our regularly scheduled Nerdy Show discussion, we're celebrating two things. One, a forthcoming record by Mark with a C., And we're going to be talking with him as well as producer Jordan Zatarazny. But also, this episode comes out on Mark with the C's birthday. Happy birthday, Mark. Thank you.
0: Uh, We'll pretend that we're recording it on that day, but thank you so much. (laughs) You've showered me with so many gifts, and I don't really know what I'm going to do with this many bath bombs, but thanks. I mean,
1: I had this card that said, hey, Mark, you're da bomb, and I was like, but what do I get him? But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about your record, Obscurity, which is now available for pre-order and comes out February 2nd. And we're going to be talking about a lot of that, but I figured we should talk a little bit about this producer you've brought in, because that's kind of a big deal. You haven't worked with a producer in a very long time. Yeah, the
0: last time that I worked with a producer on a record was 2004's Bubblegum Romance and... Often people mistake it because it's such a lo-fi record. They assume that that was the first one that I did myself, but it was actually Chris Abriski, my old stage drummer, who was, uh, we were scrapping two years worth of material. And he was going, we could just do this in my living room in a day and catch a vibe. And he was right, but it was my introduction into, yes, we can still get my point across, whatever that point might be, and use the bare amount of equipment to do that. And once I saw that, my further projects I would just do on my own. So this is the first time that I brought someone in, but it wasn't just anybody. It was the dream producer. There's no producer that was above him that I would
1: rather work with. Right. He's the force behind the band Blinker the Star. Mm -hmm. And what else should people know about him?
0: Well, Blinker the Star, when I found out about them, it appeared to be a group. And on further inspection, it was really just sort of Jordan's brainchild. And I was really obsessed with the first three albums that they put out, and importantly, skipping school in my senior year to get their second record. Oh wow! A bourgeois kitten. The day it came out, because I couldn't fathom the idea of getting to lunchtime and not having it. <laughs> like that back when such a thing was a necessity for record collecting geeks. No leaks, no internet at my disposal, and even if there was, you know, it would take me a fucking week to download the thing. So. Beyond making great Blink the Star albums, Jordan, after his tenure with DreamWorks ended, he still made Blinker the Star records
1: but As in he... like the record label extension of probably what people most recognize as the movie company. Yes. Yeah.
0: That's right. DreamWorks was before that he was on A and M records and then he was on DreamWorks. He produced stuff for Chris Cornell. He produced some of Mandy Moore's you can laugh all you want, but those are really great pop songs, and she went a little bit more, for her, harder-edged, and Jordan saw that through. He co-wrote some songs on Hole's Celebrity Skin record. He, Which, was, that's,
1: that's no joke right there. Yeah,
0: you know, Melissa Oftermar, who was the bassist for Hole at the time, and also in the Smashing Pumpkins, well, they grew up together, and they used to be in a band called Tinker, but he also produced some of her records, Heck, even Lindsey Buckingham probably still on his speed dial, because Lindsey Buckingham was on a record that I can't pronounce the name of, and this is just kind of how Jordan works. He wanted to have Lindsey on a couple of tracks, and I don't recall the year that he recorded it, but it was out there in bootleg form for years and years and years, and he only got around to releasing it in like 2013. (laughs) Just like, oh yeah, one day I'll get around to releasing the Lindsey Buckingham sessions. That's just a little bit of what he's done, but he is also he produces groups up in Canada, and one of them was Sam Roberts Band, who had a, a pretty sizable hit up there. And actually getting over the border in Canada, I had to name drop Sam Roberts Band in customs. Huh. So the, they would be like, well, what are you doing here, and how long are you staying? I'm like, oh, I'm coming to hang out with the guy that, produce Sam Roberts band. And then the customs agent, his face lit up like, oh, really? Wow. Come on into our country, spend money. And yeah, that's a bit of Jordan's track record.
1: Right on. Well, let's call him up and let's talk about Obscurity. Hey, how's it going? Hi, Jordan. Mark, what was the first time you connected with Jordan's music? What was the first thing you ever heard of his? There was an article written in like some zine, I think,
0: where they were asking melissa Aftermar's like top 10 records of the year or something and she mentioned blinker the star and it was a cool name but i think lady luck smiled upon me and i was in a record store and they have that bin where they've got their promos but they really don't know what to do with them and it was like here just take one and it was the first blinker the star album and it's an incredibly lo-fi record but it spoke to me immediately and it was missing the front flap So I didn't know how many people were in the band. It was just this mysterious object that I was playing (laughs) a lot. That was the first thing I heard. There was pitifully little information about Blinker the Star out there in Florida to stumble upon. There weren't a lot of magazine write-ups, not a lot of interviews. So I had only a connection to the records. But I'll tell you, the moment, the moment that I went, This is someone I want to work with. This is someone that, quote unquote, gets it. It's track seven on the second album, A Bourgeois Kitten. The song's called Flight Song. And there's a part in the chorus. Now, I know Jordan didn't produce this track, but he says, so I can soak in something blue. And it's got this really wonderful vocal harmony. And right as it's descending, there's this slide guitar that just ascends. And I was like, I'm feeling 17 emotions at once. This person (laughs) approved it. They know how to work with my heart. They know. (laughs) And so that was it. It was that moment where I went, this person is the dream producer. And then later I got to hear Jordan actually producing things. Mm -hmm. And I went,
1: oh, great. It wasn't unfounded. And there you go. Where did you guys actually, you know, bridge your relationships professionally between a guy who doesn't know that somewhere out in Florida, there's this person who was once a young person growing up obsessing over your music and then turned into a record maker obsessing over your music, who then one day contacts you. How did that happen?
2: I think where Mark and I first connected on a personal level was I had not made a Blink of the Star record in, I think, nine years. So when I did, I was trying to do a little bit of press to announce my reemergence. Mark, I believe, contacted me and told me that he had been listening to my music for a long time and proposed like this fairly lengthy interview and we sort of chatted back and forth. But I think in the interview, we actually got to know each other quite well. It was pretty exhaustive, but it was fun for me because it sort of gave me a little bit of context about what other people might have been thinking about my music. So it was illuminating and fun. And Mark and I just sort of hit it off on a personal level, sense of humor and all that. So I think that's when it started.
0: And that was for my old podcast. The Real Congregation, which used to be on the Nerdy Show Network. And 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 you can
1: still listen to that old episode. We'll link to it on this episode's page. Yeah. Hear the moment that you guys (laughs) clicked.
0: There were a few back and forths, but I I knew that me and Jordan (laughs) would hit it off when, for that, I I had sent him a link to an episode. Just like, here's what you're getting into, here's kind of how I am. And he responded with, okay, you played Heavy Metal Poisoning by Sticks. We're gonna get along fine, or something (laughs) like that. So...
1: (laughs) So, Jordan, now you're getting to know Mark as a person. When did you get familiar with the music he was making?
2: I think Mark at that point sent me up uh, some records. And I got into them and uh, thought they were great fun. That was sort of my first introduction. And then I sort of, you know, slowly over the years, late nights, oh, what's Mark up to? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of music out there and a lot of fun things to sort of dig through, digging through the past darkly. And um, um, yeah, so that, that's how it sort of continued. He even talked back then about coming up and recording. He said, one day I'm going to get it together and I'm going to come up and we're going to make a record together. And um, I believed him. He sounded quite serious. And um, <laughs> it took a few years, but I think I got the email almost a year before we actually set foot in the studio. Mark said, I'm ready to do it. Let's start booking some time.
0: Yeah, because it's not cheap. I mean, you can't be in the continental US and be further away from Jordan than my house, really. I mean, it would be, you'd have to try very, very hard. So, not only did one Jordan need to be paid for his services, but it cost money to get up there and to eat and things of that nature. And then, of course, making records is not as simple. It can be as simple as you just record something, put it on Bandcamp, and you're done. But if I was going to work with Jordan, I was going to do it right. All of the lowercase J's would be dotted. So <laughs> I didn't want to start doing this until I knew that I was financially ready to do it. And it had been a long game for planning the record to make with Jordan. And there were records that I made in that interim. There was one that actually uh, became exactly where I am. The record, uh, there's like three records ago. That I probably could have done it then, but it felt like a record that needed to be made alone. I didn't really realize I was making a record till it was done. And then I couldn't imagine going and sharing this really intensely personal record with someone else. This is a project that I knew that other people could understand and I wanted to do half and half between the most Mark with a C record that ever Mark with a Seed, but also something that if you've never heard me before, you can press play on and not be immediately alienated by fidelity or content wise.
2: Were you saving songs like in these interim years for this album? Yes, some like, of them. As you were going along, like, did you know sort of the, the
1: theme even back then?
0: Oh, Yeah. There were songs that were squirreled away, and
1: I was like, no, I'll save this for the Jordan record. So I've been listening to this record for quite a while. I feel that it's an extreme high watermark for the Mark With a C record library. It might be my favorite. Wow. I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> but well, you said this has been years in the making. So aside from you know reaching out to a dream producer to get this made, what makes Obscurity so significant? I don't know. I wanted to make a certain type of
0: album, and I wanted it to sound as good as my record could. And there were some things that I wanted to get across, but ultimately, I hadn't lived enough to know how to get it across yet. Hmm. Some of my earlier records are really good benchmarks for what I knew at the time. And this one is very much the amassed knowledge of a person who... In early records may have sounded like they knew it all, but now understands that they know nothing, (laughs) but trying to make sense of it all while aging. But also every album you make, and I think Jordan can attest to this too, you know that people are going to receive it as your new statement. It's not always just a collection of songs. So if I was going to bring in an outside producer for the first time in forever, the quality of the material needed to match the event.
1: And Jordan, for you, listening to Mark, getting into his music, was there anything in particular that you wanted to bring to his music? Like, I could do such and such with Mark's sound. I wanted to drum
2: on it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. I You know, I play different instruments and, and sort of on stage, you know, I play guitar and sing, but I like playing drums the best in the studio, probably. And, um, you know, once we got to the planning stages, we kind of came up with the plan that maybe, you know, Jeez, you know, how long were you here? Ten days,
0: Mark? I think I was there for just about two weeks, really. It basically
2: was coming down to I play drums here with the click day in and day out. and I'm used to getting takes done fairly quickly, but it, it's fun to play drums. And Mark's tunes are fun and it's fun to sort of play off the lyrics a bit. Like I loved Song for the Sad Girls getting into the sort of um, real kind of almost like the band sort of groove on that one. And, you know, lots of fast songs, which I like playing on with Mark.
1: You mentioned you were there for two weeks. The press release said you recorded for six days. So I'm curious how that all breaks down because six days for 12 tracks sounds like not a lot of time to my novice perspective. So we did fairly
2: lengthy online pre-production where Mm. we, you know, by by the time Mark got up here, we knew what we were going to do. We basically had the recipe and it was sort of like, okay, within... What we know we have to do, there's a certain amount of leeway where we can get creative. But the arrangements, you know, those those things were worked out. And that is often a lot of the time that I spend with an artist is getting to the point where the song is ready to be recorded. And in some instances like this, you know, the tracking went fairly quickly because we were organized. And Mark likes my tones, so that makes it easy too, you know, like when I plug into a Supro or my 68 Marshall, he you know, he likes the, those sounds already, so we were more than halfway
0: there. Yeah, I wasn't going to go up there if I'm like, yeah, I, I, I like 40% of your production. I generally trust... That if Jordan's name's on a record, I'm going to like the way it sounds and that it's going to have a little bit of that producer stank on it, Mm -hmm. but also deliver what the artist intends through Jordan's filter. And often if you give me a topic to write about, I will try my best to hit that, but it's going to go through the mark with a C filter. So leading up to it, I was just checking out things that Jordan had produced and I couldn't come up with something that I wasn't thrilled on there wasn't anything I'm sure Jordan's got something in the archive where he's like oh Mark's gonna fucking hate this when I eventually (laughs) show him but there wasn't anything and actually there was a one thing uh, an EP by a group named David's where there were some holes in the song Low Rent Truman Show where I pointed to it and I said here in these gaps you did neat shit help me come up with neat shit (laughs) so he helped me
1: uh, make the intangible occur on the record. That's perfect. I, I I love the phrase producer stank. Producer stank. I, I think that's 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 really important to me. You I can put too. you can put that in my list of turn ons. <laughs> <laughs> well Cap's Fet Life just got very different. <laughs> Gosh, I should open up an account just to put that in there—the one turn on. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Talk to me about Trevor Horn and his extreme producer stank. <laughs> <laughs> so, of those six days of recording, you were up there for two weeks. What, um, what did you spend the rest of the time on? Bar fighting. <laughs> <laughs> it's true,
0: actually. We went to a, a bar. And I bit my tongue a lot because it was this guy who was like really into Aerosmith and oh just overboard about his love of Aerosmith. And I don't want to say anything bad about Aerosmith, but I I don't agree. <laughs> and um, I was like, I am a guest in your country. I don't want to be in a fight with anybody so um i stood there and but listened. mark
1: you can't you come from the country of the greatest band in the world aerosmith
0: <laughs> i just stood there and bit my tongue while i knew that jordan was having his moment with the craft beer and i did not want to fuck that up so but i there there was a moment where i i could have gotten into a severe argument with someone who just has paid way too much fucking attention to aerosmith's catalog
2: <laughs> wait wasn't the same guy into the decemberists though
0: <laughs> no he was sitting next oh, to him and he was a right. lot older there was this man who must have been in his late 60s just espousing the virtues of the Decemberists. holy shit
2: yeah <laughs> that's
1: awesome is this some weird musicians bar where everyone has strong opinions and shares them with you readily <laughs> on thursday nights
2: yeah sometimes <laughs> The problem is the beer is so strong there that, you know, you have one and your opinions really start to flow. (laughs) You know, this is like 9, 10,
0: 11 percent double IPAs and uh, the
2: Aerosmith talk can get salty.
0: (laughs) And here I was about to say things like, Well, you know, it's heresy, but I think the Aerosmith record I like the most is Rock in a Hard Place, which if you say to a hardcore Aerosmith fan, you are about to get punched in the face because Joe Perry does not appear on it. This is something they would really like to write out of their, I mean, we're talking like appearance in the film Sgt. Pepper level of (laughs) heresy. And I do think Rock in a Hard Place is a pretty good rock album. It's a good record, yeah. I'm just not the Aerosmith fan that this person was. Mm. And he was... We kept uh, Mark safe. We kept him safe. (laughs) Yeah. He was pushy about it. But when we weren't in the studio, Jordan would take me to like, hey, here's a lake. Come see Canada. And I found that a lot of Canada doesn't look much different than small towns in Florida that are in the middle of nowhere. Each day opened pretty much the same way. I would get up after Jordan and I was uh, sleeping on an air mattress in the control room of the studio. And I would then walk to the kitchen, make the strongest pot of coffee known to man. I mean, Jordan saw the future drinking my coffee. I would turn on this little radio, listen to a little bit of CBC, and then invariably walk to the record player. Jordan has a really good record collection. But nine times out of 10, I was putting on the same record over and over it that we were discovering at the same
1: time, oh, which yeah. was Clues by Robert Palmer. One of my favorite records of all time. Wow,
2: so. we really got into it this summer. The local like musical instrument store opened up a little back room, and uh, they have pretty good classic rock selection back there. And uh, so I picked up a couple... Unknowns and hadn't really listened to it that much until Mark came. I listened to it once and was like, This is the one out of the three Robert Palmer records I got that's cool. And then, yeah, Mark was playing it in the morning, and um, boy, that, that was fun listening to that and getting into that.
1: So, what kind of influence did Clues have on the production of this record? I just asked myself the same question. <laughs> i trying to imagine.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I'd really have to think about that. I, I, I felt that there was one thing. I'm not going to think of it, but I thought that there was one thing that we liked one day where we were like, can we take a bit of that somewhere? I can't remember what it was, though, if it was a drum fill or something.
0: I want to say it was a synthesizer tone that it was there if you were listening for it, but it wasn't really invasive. And, Mm -hmm. And we were trying to find something tasty for ear candy. But I don't recall precisely. I remember that I wanted to find a way... There's this really great break in the song Clues, which has an amazing groove to it, but ultimately it's three chords, and doing a lot with mostly staying in the key of D7. And there's just this groove where the second you hear it, the... It comes out of nowhere, it fucks your whole day up, and you're like, I was dancing, and then Robert Palmer made me look like a fool. I want to say it was a sound from something like I Dream of Wires, that Gary Newman cover. Hmm. Mm. But you've got to keep in mind, we're talking about this around eight months after we recorded the album, so we really are searching the memory banks. This isn't all fresh. We've since
2: grown long gray beards since that album, and we (laughs) forgot
0: the
1: process. Well... All that said, I mean, once you check out Obscurity, you should maybe also check out Clues by Robert Palmer.
0: And you should check out Jordan's brand new record, Eight of Hearts. Jordan was playing me unfinished stuff from Eight of Hearts at the time and still got the record out before (laughs) Obscurity (laughs) is out because... We're, we're releasing this episode in the pre-order stage of Obscurity, but Jordan's record's been out for like a month, and then there were ideas that I heard on the record where I'm like, oh, we should have done that, I wish you would have played me this song so I could have stolen that idea for this record, and often... You know, after you make a record, you hear something and go, oh, we should have totally done that. (laughs) I I was inspired for future things by hearing what you'd been recording under my
1: nose that I was in the same room as.
2: See, that's that's what I was doing those hours when you were asleep. I was plotting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So with the record not being out yet, I don't want to really spoil anything, but I feel like there's some things we should talk about on a track-by-track basis. Yeah, shoot. For starters, it opens with a song called Old Man Yells at iCloud, which is very intense and poignant in terms of what people are going through in online interactions today. Some heavy social commentary throughout the record, really, but it starts here. There's lines like the things that separate us, what used to make us unique, we're waving them like a handicap of why our lives are always incomplete or maybe the most poignant, every statement's now a trap on searchable rectangular machines. There's a lot of talk about who gets the right to speak, and when you speak, watching what you say. And as a songwriter who a certain percentage of your music is from a degree of a 1st person's perspective, at, at least, I'm curious about the decision to make this statement right off the top of the record, why it was made, and made in the way that you did.
0: Lyrically, I wasn't thinking that it needed to open the record so much when I, I was working on it. I was certainly writing about not necessarily being able to write. I'm not so much writing about writer's block, but, well, you've always got to measure things in today's climate on, should I say this? Am I hurting someone if I say this? So I thought I'd write about the phenomenon itself rather than taking a stance one way or the other on it. But its placement on the record, it works out that, to me... If you listen to my last EP, Half Serious, Half Kidding, which is sort of the second part of the trilogy that Obscurity ends, it ends with a song called This Meeting is Bullshit, and the narrator spends a lot of time making fun of Charles, the fuddy-duddy manager who's running the meeting, and Charles always looks like he sat on his own balls, and, oh great, Charles is coughing again. Well, we're making fun of Charles, but how out of place does Charles feel? So one could look at it as Charles themselves figuring things out, but uh, musically, it was something I wasn't totally sure about because it seemed a little too simple. And I sent it to Jordan and I said, you know, uh, what if we use this for like an intro to the record? Like, should we record it just in case? And I think I compared it to the post-war dream from Pink Floyd's final cut. yeah. That's what I remember of it. Do you remember differently, Jordan? No, and that's
2: probably what hooked me on it was I love that record. And um, yeah, the idea sat well with me to open
1: with that one.
0: I don't know where else you would have put it, though, once you've heard it. (laughs) exactly. Where else could you put it on the record?
1: That's a very good question. (laughs) In terms of the theme of the song, Mark, knowing you personally, I know that you're very conscious of being respectful to people and not wanting to rub anyone the wrong way. But there's a lot of moments on the record where you're kind of dealing with that in different ways and where discussions have gone in terms of public scrutiny. And even the act of having that conversation, no matter what your end point is, is in a way, depending on how reactionary a given listener could be, it could make someone prickle up if they're not really listening to what you're saying. Sure. I was curious if when, you know, putting this together and doing other tracks like Terribly Popular, you had any reservations about the dialogue you were creating about this scrutiny of language and this writer's block and not being able to say things. Yeah,
0: I, I was terrified to do it. I'm still scared about it. I'm scared of who's going to hear it eight to 80 years from now and how that's going to land with them. You don't know what attitudes are going to change and which things you've done every day without thinking about it have either diminished someone else's life or lifestyle or made it seem as if you're thumbing your nose at them in the way that they are. And it's impossible to know everything. It's terrifying. It was completely purposeful. But I've been told by rock history that the material that scares you is what you've got to write. So thus, Old Man Yells at iCloud was born.
1: (laughs) That track is very mellow, and then goes into the second song, terribly popular, which like you know hits you immediately with some rock music. But iCloud has—it uh, sounds like it was was the entire thing recorded outdoors? No, <laughs> no. Uh, Jordan, did we use some cricket sounds or something? <laughs> you were like, it sounds like Florida
2: down here, <laughs> wasn't it? Wasn't it like we were getting some loud frog and cricket action from across the road? Is that how it went down?
0: Yeah, I remember at first saying I wanted to get some ambience on the track to open with just, and and I was. I think I'd pitched. Okay, what sort of settings do you have for your synthesizer to get ambient sounds? And (laughs) you're like, "Uh, we're in the middle of the Canadian outback. I can open the back door. (laughs) So yeah, we put a mic out. The only technical
2: challenge was getting the wind to die down, and we just like put some like uh, tissue paper and tape around it, didn't we?
0: Yeah, we lo-fi'd it for that, and so there is still a little bit of lo-fi on the record because it was just paper towels, (laughs) duct tape. And, um, and we spent a lot of time in that specific space during breaks, like just sometimes you've just recorded something and you've got to walk away for a minute, think about it, hear it coming out of another room, making sure you've made the right decisions. But also we would go out at night and look at the sky because you've never seen the sky until you've seen it from the Canadian Outback. And Jordan spends a lot of time looking at the sky out there and kind of got me into it as well. Since it's not something you can see every day at home, you can really lose yourself and not realize that 20 minutes can become two hours.
2: It's just an undiluted, very little light pollution out here. And, you know, we're 100 miles from the nearest big city.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, you can just really get into the depth of the, of the view out here of
1: the sky. Canada's like- amazing. <laughs> I hear you're aiming for a poutine dinner on your birthday, which is, of course, tonight. Yeah,
0: uh, I had my first real poutine up in Canada, actually at one of the lakes that Jordan took me to for Mm. some sightseeing, and there was just a random, I don't know why either, because there was nobody around, like there are very few people in this (laughs) park, but there's just this random poutine truck in the middle of a park. And I went, oh, I'm supposed to try that while I'm here. And I ate it, and it was quite possibly the most magical food combination that it's very simple to put together, but for whatever reason,
1: nobody does down here. There's some unusual things sprinkled throughout obscurity. For example, Laurent Truman Show has some uh, Morse code in it I don't know if you're interested in sharing what that is, but I mean, that, that shit always gets me curious. I was curious when Roger Waters did it on Radio Chaos, and I'm curious what, it, what happens when Mark with a C does inexplicable Morse code. I'm not going to tell you. Hiring for your small
2: business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
1: Okay, well, if you know Morse code, please uh, write in to me cap at nerdyshow.com because I'm sure I could figure it out. But I've never been very good at that Morse code thing. I needed the internet to tell me what Radio Chaos was doing. (laughs) I will give you one spoiler, and that's that I'm also terrible at Morse code. Oh, good. So it's going to be misspelled. (laughs) Call home, Billy. (laughs) You have a track on here called Maybe, and I think it's really important. It's one of my favorite songs you've ever done, and it's a really fun thing for fans of music pop culture. You appear to have written the song Roxanne from Roxanne's Perspective. That is very astute.
0: Yes, I am doing my job because you have gotten that idea. But that is not the only thing going on. I am telling you something else but using that vehicle to do it. And it's in line with the rest of the record. In general, I could say that there's a lot of pressure on people who are not musicians that is given to musicians to assume that you want to make it. Whatever you are doing in between creating the music and not being completely well-known by everybody on Earth, you're just one show away from making it. But not all of us have that aim. Some people just have the aim of making the art, and we don't need to, quote-unquote, make it. And at the time that Roxanne was a big hit single, it was still a very 50s mentality in uh, the U.S., at least, with... Well, okay, you're a sex worker, Roxanne, but really what you're aiming for is you want to come home and be a housewife and be a mom and, you know, raise some kids and make dinner same meal times every day. That's what you really want, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I can protest till I'm blue in the face that all I want to do is make records and let the chips fall where they may. Very few people believe but that. But don't
1: you want to make it, Mark? Don't you want to be, like, a success? Don't you want to see a name and lights?
0: <laughs> people have tattooed my lyrics on their bodies people have been married to my songs i've had my songs played like, at fu- to the song is that legal uh well certain parts of arkansas i've had my songs played at funerals having that kind of effect on people even in the smallest way, I've already made it. There's nowhere else to go from that. What's a gold record on the wall going to change from the personal effects, those, those personal stories that I know of people that have been
1: touched by songs that I made up in my garage? Jordan, I'm curious how this dialogue communicates to you and your presence within the music industry, having worked with all these famous people. What's your take on the perspective of this uh, this thing that Mark is commenting on that happens and the expectations that are placed on you to make it, et cetera.
2: For me personally, when I first started playing music, it was, you know, it became an all-encompassing obsession like it, like it is for most musicians. And then, you know, in my early 20s, signed a record deal. And yes, you must do things that are not a lot of fun to do, but I was certainly game for it back then. I think by my late 20s, when I started transitioning into a more studio-based existence. I just was slowly, gradually losing that drive to, you know, that desire to be well known. And that just pure joys of waking up every day and every day being a new musical adventure, i.e. studio life, became much more attractive as time went on to the point now where I'm almost a hermit and, you know, <laughs> spend all of my time where I'm not with either my kids or loved ones in the studio. And that that's where I want to be. I get asked a lot to do shows or when are you going to tour and all this stuff. And every couple of years I manage to do something like that. But, you know, it's great for your music to disseminate and for you to sell records and stuff like that. But certainly the whole wanting to be well-known seems to be, especially at this point in history, seems to be very undesirable. I'll take the paycheck, but please just don't put my face on the cover. That's, that's sort of how I feel about it now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the perspective of maybe that added focal point to it man that is it's that's really truly important to the whole crux of this record and it's not, i mean it's not a you wouldn't call obscurity a concept record per se would you i would say my career is a concept career okay that that's maybe more in line with you, <laughs> <laughs> that that's definitely the trajectory that the the record is very definitely aimed in there's clearly a lot of mark with a c self-reflection on here mm-hmm. and progression I have, do have one last question about the Roxanne component of, yeah. of Maybe. Do you recall when the song started kicking around in your head, the, the seed of, of this, uh, this premise? No, not a specific date or anything, but it's a,
0: it's a writing exercise that I do quite often where I pick a well-known song and I write a sequel to it, or I write it from a different perspective, or, well, how did that look to the passerby? And these come out occasionally when I think they're good enough to do. And sometimes they come out and I don't tell you that they are those things. But uh-huh. uh, for example, Carol King had the song, I Feel the Earth Move Under My Feet. And then I wrote a song specifically to the character in that song called The Earth Didn't Move, You're Just Hung Over. And it was about explaining <laughs> to someone, it really uh, Gary Goffin, who would have been her co-writer, like, no, you've just got the shakes and talking about sort of living with an artist who's Career allows them to just sort of be a degenerate in every other aspect of their life. Now, that isn't Carol King herself, mind
1: you. It's just the character in the song. It's a good writing prompt. That's a fascinating direction to sharply veer into from, you know, what if you're watching old episodes of The Muppets is a goofy song about earthquakes.
2: <laughs> I think it'd be fun to give Mark specific songs to do this process <laughs> because he does it so well. I'm just a couple in my head were just coming to me. and I was thinking, this could be really funny.
0: I had the idea when uh, I was told um, once that Neil Young had a record where his deal was, it would look like a covers record when you looked at the song titles (laughs) on the back cover, but all the songs would be the exact opposite style. So instead of we can work (laughs) it out, he did like this like six minute acoustic dirge. And well, that's kind of neat, but that also seems really lazy, like, That's an easy order to fill. You can just call the song whatever you want. The 90s taught us that. You you write write a song that is clearly known as,
3: yeah, yeah,"
0: and we called it Lithium. So, um, and and hell, you know, Jordan, on some of your records, sorry, man, there's a couple of those too. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) Nothing at all wrong with this, but I feel like that was a good idea, but Neil Young could have done better. So, um, he knows, and the record never came out.
1: So just I was actually going to ask exercise. you, which, and what record was this? Because I don't remember ever hearing about this before. It,
0: it was something that I heard secondhand from somebody who worked with Neil. Oh, interesting. But I thought, what a great idea. So it takes you to uncharted territory to take established material and just write more to it.
1: Well, here's the reason I asked about when the seed of the idea might have come up. Because in prepping for this interview, I was just casually scanning through some old episodes of a YouTube series you did called Why back in 2016, Mm -hmm. where you, for about 18-minute blocks, you record literally everything you've done in a day's time, and you'd skip to what seems like arbitrary moments at time codes or something. I'm not sure exactly how you did it, but you'd see these really raw snippets of the career of Mark with a C and doing everything you're doing. And in your one from May that year, May 2016... You see some behind-the-scenes footage of when we did a Nerdy FM session recording you and the band performing some tracks at the sci studio. And then there was this very strange moment in there, well, where this happens. Okay, now
2: I put the red light on you.
0: You don't have to put on the red light. Those days are over. You don't have to sell your body to the night. But what if I want to? All yeah, right. I mean, maybe Roxanne likes it. He didn't ask. <laughs> Don't stand too close to All
1: right, hold on. Yes. <laughs> so that happened. But I believe also
0: in the series, you might see me laying down a demo, a, a very rough demo for, like,
1: I think I'd change the key of the song. So that's also in the series somewhere. Y- you too. might. I haven't watched the whole thing. And in fact, if for those of you who are like, what is this thing? I've never heard of it. Well, very few people have watched this. So yeah. you, should, you should get in on that. Well, there was one feature length version
0: of why that came hidden in the lp sleeve of exactly where i am mm-hmm. and then there was a series done as well and uh there could be another series like that in the future i don't know it's it's a real commitment to do uh, it seems like it and it takes up a, a fuck load of computer resources too and i i think right now my time could be better spent doing other things but i might have been referencing something i'd already written i don't remember if it was done or not but I know that I was working on the song around that
1: time. Okay, interesting.
0: Probably surprising the hell out of Jordan. I don't think he knows that why, which is the name of the song that closes the record, was also a movie and a series.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is going very deep. Surprise!
0: (laughs) Why is basically something for someone to discover, and if you want to see a surrealist take on very real actions of a hardworking independent musician who sometimes gets to only play for three drunks, but I've had to prepare for weeks so I don't show up looking like I don't know what I'm doing. Um, It's kind of a behind-the-scenes look at that, but even though you can clearly see where I ended up, there's not much narrative through it. You've Mm. you've really got to be
1: married to it. Again, I guess Arkansas. (laughs) 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 So let's listen to Maybe, but before we do... I'd like to, uh, to thank you for listening to this episode of Nerdy Show. We're entirely listener-supported. We rely on you to keep Nerdy Show and all the shows in the Nerdy Show Network alive by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdy show or shopping via our Amazon links. But this record was also made via Patreon, uh, via Mark with the C's Patreon. Yeah, it would not have
0: existed without the support of listeners just like you and sorry to go all pbs on you but it's the truth i mean i was saving and i was about halfway there but a lot of what i spend the money on that comes from patreon they're all things that i'm going to do anyways you're just helping me not take years to do them more (laughs) years than it's already taking to do it and i think that i've made it pretty clear i'm often thinking in a long game i have plans long before you ever hear the music And uh, you can get glimpses into that by supporting me at patreon.com slash mark with a C. You can get glimpses into where I'm going in exchange. It's a little tit for tat, I'll admit it, but Patreon works like a monthly tip jar that helps some creative avenues pay the bills. In my case, it literally helps create the art. And in some cases, helps me with ideas to create the art because crowdfunding itself has
1: influenced my music. So with that, Let's listen to Maybe, and then we'll be back to talk more about the construction of obscurity. Close the record with a sort of triptych of three pieces that work together, ending on the song "Why," which I can only assume wraps back into this larger statement of being an independent musician. But for people who haven't familiarized themselves with the tracklist of this record that's not yet out, uh, it goes as obscurity, a track called "Please Don't Let My Art Die," and then finally "Why." And just from those statements alone, combined with what we've talked here tonight, sounds like it's getting into pretty personal Mark with the C self commentary. In the track obscurity, you. Mention how lots of folks come up to you and all the, the, very, the variety of things that folks will casually come up to you be like, oh, Mark of the Sea, uh, you write funny songs. Mm-hmm. And you gotta, you, this, that's something you've had to refute to a degree for years now. And I'm wondering what made this moment the moment where you're like, folks, I write songs that have humor in them, but much like a great many artists that aren't humor artists, I'm not a comedy musician. <laughs> You could also say Mark, you're an indie rock artist and I would refute that as well.
0: Okay. Um, I just like music and I like all the stuff you can do with it. So, I'm not saying I don't want to be understood or anything, that jerky. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you've said something enough that you're
1: like, "You know what? If I just put it in a song maybe." <laughs> it's on won't the record remember. now. Yeah. <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> on the record overall, you guys mentioned the the DIY microphone thing, but I feel like, you know, I'm listening to the record. It's very tight. I love all the things going on in it. It's hard for me as a listener to Zero In and be like, tell me about that chord and how you got it on that one song. So I would love to hear some production stories of things that people might, you know, benefit from hearing this story of how a song got recorded or how it transformed in the studio once you guys got to making it.
2: Let's go back to Song for the Sad Girls because that one was, musically, it sort of is, you know, in its own little world. I like to hear Mark do an album kind of like musically in that vein could be an interesting thing. That song just uh, has a very particular groove that was really fun that I really had fun getting behind. I remember doing drum takes for that and kind of loosening up, you know, compared to the other tracks and really kind of going for Nick Mason fills and stuff like that. My memories are all of the drums for some
0: reason. <laughs> <laughs> and you were done with them in, I, I think, the second day?
2: Yeah. <laughs> It was a lot of brain power that just got shot in those first two days.
0: <laughs> one that transformed completely is on the record as The New Normal. Hmm. And this song went through about four different phases in demos. Uh, once there was a full band version of it. The one that Jordan got sent as the intent for how to do it was actually very similar in some ways, to the song Exactly Where I Am from the album of the same name.
1: And yeah, I was going to ask about that, because this song does seem cut from a similar cloth as that side B song cycle from Exactly Where I Am.
0: This was initially in the demo, I believe it was just bass guitar instead of acoustic guitar, some hand claps, and an organ, and I wanted it to be a cross between the song Exactly Where I Am and Tender by Blur. I wanted to go for this real gospel feel. And when we went into the studio to try it, first of all, I'm just not a great bassist. I can root note it till the cows come home and then root note it with the cows, but it wasn't happening. And I, believe it or not, Song for the Sad Girls actually was brought in as, well, while we're here, we might as well record it. I wasn't even sure that it was going to make the record. And there was a moment where when the new normal, which at the time was called the new PC, Mm. When it wasn't happening, it almost got cut from the record. We were hitting brick walls with it to the point where I think it became both of our least favorite song in the sessions at the time. It was for a second, yeah. Like, we just could not get the feel on this, but it was such a simple feel that it hurts when you're like, this is so obvious what I want to do. Why won't the music do what I'm... My hands are here. The instruments are here. (laughs) The microphones are here. Do your job. And it just wouldn't. And... That went through a massive transformation while we rebuilt it from the ground up. And did I play the keyboards on the new normal or was that you? Because I I did some and you did some, Jordan.
2: Yeah, I think we split on that one. I remember playing that organ on Y.
0: That's the highlight right there. That's the money shot. (laughs) That was the Rick Wright shot, the wet dream. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I hadn't come up with any instruments because that's come expensive up, too. I mean, yeah, I hadn't flown with any. I, I flew with some clothes and, you know, my necessities, but that was about it. So I was at the mercy of what instruments Jordan had at his disposal in the studio. And there was almost never a time that he put something in my hand and went, oh, this is the tone we're going to go for that I didn't go, great, he gets it, let's go. <laughs> but the new normal was the only time that I remember there being a massive transformation from the intention to where we ended up. Song for the Sad Girls, Jordan transformed with feel to being a song that was... Now, I've already released Song for the Sad Girls. There's a demo version that came out as a single. It wasn't intended to be the demo version. It now is the demo version. (laughs) Um, But Jordan added this whole new feel that it might be uh, so simple, the, the little changes that were made to the feel. But now I love the song. And that really felt like the the truest collaboration, even though all the ideas were collaborations and me running things past Jordan and vice versa. That was the one where having a cemented place on the album was 100% due to Jordan and his faith in the song and what he brought to it. Hmm. We sort of did things
2: in chunks. We did like drums and then we did a wave of guitars and And then it was time to do vocals and uh, everything had been going fairly smoothly Mark had developed a cold that was getting worse and
0: worse, you know I've been on record with having throat issues for years if something can go wrong with your throat It will go wrong with mine at every given opportunity
2: Now what was the last one that we were working on you were like man? I think I'm really close to the end and you were
0: I think that it was some backing vocals on your goddamn birthday and the new normal. And I want to say it was like a lead vocal, something really important, like yeah, perfect yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah, There was
2: one important thing. And I think we just like did it as quickly as we possibly could and in the nick of time, because that even the next day, your voice was shattered. It was like, Ugh. it was husky sounding.
0: Yeah, if I'd wanted to make like, just a complete surprise 180 Tom Waits record. We could have done a whole other yeah. set had of had sessions. Yeah, another batch of
2: songs that would have fit, you could have really done your Heart Attack and Vine thing.
1: <laughs> or like done a tandem release like uh, Alice and Blood Money at the same day, boom, two Marks.
2: <laughs> or like Shania, you know, where she does like the pop album and then the country album. Mark could do like the Mark with a C album and then the... Mark with a
1: cold album. You know, <laughs> <More> <laughs> the
2: devastating. Yeah.
1: oh no there, there's a there's a fun sounding project that sounds like absolute misery to ever record or put in action yeah
2: yeah that sounds terrible Mark can we not do that album <laughs> if we ever do another one well, well do yeah a fresh you, one, but.
1: you'd end up catching
0: it most likely right so
2: oh man you were I felt so bad for you man but um, <laughs> Mark's voice sounds so fresh so young and fresh. He can really sing high and I can't hear one remnant of that cold at all. It's just a memory. But I spent yeah, the rest
0: of the time in complete misery. And that's when um, I found that you can get way better cold medication in Canada than you can <laughs> in America. I asked the lady at Walmart, Hey, where's your DayQuil in pill form? And she looked at me and she was like, what are you taking that shit for? like, because I have a cold. <laughs> and she's like, why don't you just take a Percocet? And I'm like, I'm a, I'm a visitor in this country. I shouldn't say what I want to <laughs> say, which is, you holding? Um, <laughs> but um, you can get codeine over the counter. And I'd initially bought codeine over the counter when I first got there just for the sheer novelty of doing it. <laughs> so sort of like if you're in Colorado, you you want to buy the legal weed just because... It's a novelty to buy the legal weed. I myself don't partake of weed. I I feel the same way. I don't know what I'd do with it, but the novelty is kind of appealing. (laughs) Right. So she's like, oh, yeah, all the cold medicine up here has got codeine in it. So just bam, like how many you want? She just literally reaches (laughs) underneath the counter where she was standing and pulls out the biggest bottle I've ever seen of drugs in my life. (laughs) And she's like, "Yeah, how many you want?" And just like pours a bunch on the like, counter, like the things you can get of like cheese doodles at Costco. Like, oh that. yeah, <laughs> I mean, just this massive backstock. And I'm like, "Well, I leave on this day." And then I started censoring myself. I'm like, "Well, if she knows I'm not from here, maybe she won't sell it to me." And so, yeah, you can uh, get a cold in Canada and be high as hell. Welcome to the Great High North. <laughs> Take off, indeed. <laughs> so, yeah, the cold did kick my ass. It was a really awful cold. But that being said, it wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been because I was flying. Just during the cold, I was I was sober while we recorded the record.
2: Robert Plant says he sang cashmere with a bad cold, and he
1: regrets it forever. And um, I never noticed
2: until he actually said
1: it. <laughs> Mark, you, you mentioned the, the famous Canadian phraseology of Takeoff, which of course makes me think of the Bob and Doug McKenzie featuring Getty Lee single Takeoff. And then you've got the cover of Obscurity here, which is a takeoff, you might say, of the cover for Rush's Test for Echo in terms of this sculpture made out of stones on the front of here. I was wondering if you could talk about the Canadian iconography and why this Canadian iconography.
0: I have a general rule with my records where, unless I've got a very specific idea that I want to get across where I'll explain it in great depth, like, say, the artwork for popular music, for the most part, I have a rule which is, if I ask someone to do cover art, I let the creative person be creative. So I've had um, a collaborative relationship with That Catherine, For many years, she's a Canadian artist, wonderfully talented, and quite possibly my favorite visual artist that makes standstill 2D art. And this is the cover that she sent me back. The Inukshuk is, and that's assuming that I'm pronouncing that word right, I don't know that Catherine is a fan of Rush or had even made the connection for Test for Echo, but it's something that if you're in really seemingly uninhabitable parts of Canada some would leave these statues to say someone was here. This is news to me. Okay. Yeah, so it's literally Canadian rock when you're looking at it. But it's, there's a lot of making sure that I leave behind something to say I was here. Now, I'm speaking on Catherine's behalf. We haven't actually talked this in depth about it, but it's my belief that that's why she chose what she chose. And I definitely told her that we spent a lot of time looking at the sky. So you've got a bit of Aurora Borealis action going on there as well. But there's a a lot of Canadian stuff going on in that cover. And that includes the artists that made it.
1: Well, a very Canadian record from a Floridian.
0: I love Canadian rock so much. And it's not just, oh, yeah, I like Rush. I mean, in my top 10 of all time is the band Sloan, Just the most underrated band we basically have another Beatles people say oh you know the Beatles never happen again like you aren't paying attention we totally have a Beatles and you didn't give them the chance obviously Jordan his records had a huge impact on me it's safe to say that just as much influence as British rock and roll had on me with the Who the Kinks, Davy Jones of the Monkees so technically it's Britpop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> David Bowie, <laughs> an equal amount of influence has seeped in from the Canadian musicians
1: that I really love. Let's take it back to the absolute end of the record. Okay. I'm not going to say what, but there's an old song you go back to in the last track, and it closes things out, and there's a statement being made there, and I think it's probably best to let the listener decide what that statement is, but it's definitely reflective of the journey of Mark with the Sea. And I'm curious if you could say one thing to 2002, Mark with a C, 24 years old, if Wikipedia has given me the right information about when you were born. (laughs) Um, Mark with a C, just starting out on the road to being a professional musician, what would you say to that Mark with a C? Don't listen to anybody about what you should be making, including me. As including
0: you right now? Yes. Yeah. Don't listen to anyone. Did you listen to too many people back then? The things that I regret... You know, because let's face it, there's going to be, if you have a big catalog, there's going to be a couple things that you look back on and you're not so wild about. Mm-hmm. Usually I can trace back to the person that suggested something that was the diving off point to get there. I seem to be at my best when I disappear up my own ass. <laughs> it tends to be the material that people connect to the most. So that would be what I would tell. That is wise
2: yeah. advice. I concur completely. It's like the fun thing about. I hate the word maturing, but maturing as an artist is those voices basically start to fall by the wayside, and you sort of become ideally a truer artist, I think, as you as you get older. And uh, I thought that was well said, Mark.
0: Thank you. I think what you said was well said. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Let's let's bro I hug. Love you. <laughs> let's do that. I'm hugging you, but I'm hitting you. Hug. <laughs> you know, show of dominance.
1: It'll be great. <laughs> Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for making a fantastic album, making Mark sound like, uh, he always sounded great, but man, you made him sound really great.
2: Thank you for saying so. I'm really excited for this to come out and um, see what people think of it. I think people are going to like it.
0: And Jordan, I'd also like to thank you for helping me make the album I've been dreaming about making since I was a teenager.
1: It was my absolute pleasure, Mark. We had so much fun. Mark, do you have any performances in the orbit of these releases that anybody should know about?
0: If you're in Florida, I'll be doing a couple of gigs and uh, you can find out about those on markwithac.com. Also, if you follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash music, there's an events tab and you can see upcoming shows that I've got. I'm going to go to Minnesota in March. That's going to be fun. I'm playing a, a comedy music show up there. Funnily but Mark, enough,
1: you're not a comedy musician.
0: <laughs> but I can put a lot of funny songs in one place and pull it off. I mean wonderful I I could also go to a ballad festival and blow some mind
1: man that's a show yeah (laughs) it's a show no one's doing
0: and why not but I think that comedy music can exist next to ballads next to dirges next to nautical stuff it's all possible but it doesn't define you so guy who doesn't tour doing a tour date probably some others I want to go to your house specifically if you're listening I want to go to your house and play for you and your friends How would they go about facilitating that, Mark? I'm pretty easy to contact. If you go to markwithac.bandcamp.com, there's a way to contact me. And we can talk about the ins and outs, but don't contact me about it unless you're really fucking serious about making this happen. But I would like to go to your place if I could and sing for you and your friends. No, ahead of time, I'm really allergic to cats, but for you, I'll try to pop a Benadryl and see
1: what happens. Well, we'll talk, we'll talk. (laughs) Taking us out in closing on this episode of Nerdy Show. We're going to listen to a softer song from Obscurity. It's called One of These Are Going to Be Your Day, a song where I was thrilled to hear, Mark, you gave a little bit of a nod to uh, David Gilmore-era Pink Floyd in a positive slant (laughs) for a change. That's the thing. We've we've spoken many times about Gilmore-era Pink Floyd, which I enjoyed, and you outright generally don't seem to care for much Mm -hmm. at all. Don't consider Pink Floyd, which I, I understand completely.
0: If you're at home listening and you have no idea what we're talking about, you are no doubt familiar with the entity that is Pink Floyd. You have heard of it. Pink Floyd was a band fronted by a charismatic person named Sid Barrett, who had some mental issues and left the group. They had to carry on, mostly led by Roger Waters, who wrote the bulk of what you know from Pink Floyd. He really styled the group as best as he could, and David Gilmour was brought in as a replacement for Sid Barrett, but wasn't necessarily the leader. Roger Waters, depending on who you believe, either quit or was ousted from Pink Floyd, and it really depends on which legal document you're reading at the time. But anyways, there were records that David Gilmour led. They're very, very, very different, sometimes only superficially sounding like Pink Floyd controversial because in some ways they do really sound like David Gilmore's solo records where he just went, I could sell more if I called it Pink Floyd and if I use someone from the Pink Floyd arsenal. But even when it's dire, you still have a really beautiful song like On the Turning Away and that's kind of emblematic of what I'm saying in the song. Even on your worst day, you can make something good. You can look back on that bad day and go, it's a good thing I was there.
3: You won't be jumping out of your skin forever Pretty soon the jitters have got to go away Things can't always feel so damn untethered Pretty soon it might just be okay Though it's tough to say, since this sounds so cliche, like a rhyme scheme that goes a a a. You can use this song like lingerie. You can stain it up once and throw it away, but one of these is gonna be yours. And really think about it A few beeps and then a slow decay You can search in vain for angioscopics But we're more than just an alphanumeric display Though that's tough to say Since this sounds so cliché like a rhyme scheme that goes A, A, A Gilmore led the Floyd Brigade They still had on the turning away And One of these are gonna be all your- Bad dwindles away. You can search for islands that you don't get, or you can be your own Daniel Faraday. <laughs> but that's tough to say since this sounds so cliche, like the rhyme scheme that goes a loose a a in a hole you didn't make well maybe it's just special K, but one of these is gonna be your day one of these are gonna be